And we are beginning to look at this morning a large section here or subsection at the conclusion of a larger section in Deuteronomy. We are not going to get through all of it. I'll explain that in just a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, is where we're going to start this morning. This is where our journey begins. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15, and we are going to read verses 15 through 25. So beginning in verse 15, through the remainder of the chapter, however, we will cover more than what we find in this particular chapter. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 15, Moses writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, You will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. The grass withers and the flowers fade, church family, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We are continuing to make our way through a portion of God's word known to us as Deuteronomy. I shared with my family the other day, and I've shared even with some of you over the last couple of weeks or so, that Deuteronomy has been, just so you know, has been the most challenging expositional series I have ever attempted. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know why. But even the text this morning, though we're not going to cover anything you might term explicit, uh, some of that perhaps we'll, we'll cover in a couple of weeks, but the text this morning proves to be challenging. However, in the midst of these challenges, I have discovered, as you would imagine, spiritual reward, great spiritual reward as I make my way as an expositor of scripture through Deuteronomy. I hope that's been the case for you. In fact, I've heard from some of you that has been the case 
from some of you, some of you saying things like, I'm learning to read Deuteronomy as a Christian. What a joy that gives to me as a pastor. I am too. I am too. God the Spirit is sanctifying me throughout this series as a son of God, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, and as an interpreter and expositor of the word of God. So it's been a challenging journey, but it's been a good and rewarding journey. As I mentioned a moment ago, in this journey, we are nearing the end of one of the larger sections of the book of Deuteronomy. And this large section in Deuteronomy began back in chapter 12. If you can imagine that, it's been some time ago. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, we started to unpack a section in Deuteronomy. And this section doesn't end until the conclusion of chapter 26. Chapters 12 to 26 really provide the bulk of what you find in Deuteronomy, as you can imagine, just by counting. And in this, in this section of Deuteronomy, and in particular toward the end of this section, which is where we find ourselves this morning and where we will find ourselves likely for the next couple of Lord's Days, we find a smorgasbord of vastly different instructions from one verse to the next. I mean, it's almost as if Moses just decides he's going to cover everything that he hasn't mentioned up until the present. And so from verse to verse, you never know what God the Spirit through Moses is going to talk about. And uh, perhaps this is one way of reminding us that all of life is to be brought into subjection under the authority of Christ. So we're going to find all of the facets of life in so much of what God instructs of his people here at the conclusion of this section. I will tell you that when it comes, this is all free, okay? This is all free. When it comes to ascertaining a theme or a focus, it's one of the desires of an expositor, right? When you're walking through the text of scripture, you want to find, discover, as it were, a theme or a thrust, or even themes, plural. When it comes to discovering that theme or that focus, the text we're in today and the text we're going to be in probably for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, this text has been the most challenging text to date in Deuteronomy. To illustrate the point, I thought it would prove helpful for you to see a picture of the process that I went through this week. It's not the whole process. Now, I know you cannot read my handwriting. Some of that is English. Some of it is Hebrew. You can't tell the difference from where you're sitting. And this is what began as a sermon outline. Okay, this is the sermon outline for the morning. So if you're taking notes, just jot this down. Of course, I'm joking. Thank you all for putting that up. But that gives you a picture of what I was experiencing as I walked through this text. I started thinking, Lord, there are 23 sermons here. And though we could do that, I didn't consider it advisable. And so I started writing. And uh, the whiteboard was a part of that process. There was a notepad that was another part of that process. And various people throughout the office came by and noticed this and thought, well, he's finally lost it. (laughs) Who lets him in every Lord's Day? Amid the complexity, amid all of the complexity of this text and the variation of the text, I do think we do find an overarching and governing purpose. 
But I will tell you, the overarching and governing purpose is really the purpose of Deuteronomy. So we're going to interpret these couple of chapters in light of that overarching thrust or purpose or theme in the book of Deuteronomy. And the purpose, this purpose can be summarized with a question. So if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. This is not a new question if you've been with us throughout Deuteronomy, but here's the question. How should God's people live in God's good land under God's gracious rule? How should God's people live in God's good land under God's gracious rule? I'm piggybacking, by the way, on a scholar known as Graham Goldsworthy and a host of others who've summarized much of scripture for us in a wonderful way. But I do think that Deuteronomy deals here. God's people are about to enter the land of Canaan. They're on the plains of Moab. God's promises are finally going to be realized in part. And God is instructing his redeemed people, the people that he has rescued out of Egypt by means of his sovereign and benevolent power the people he has set free from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And so here they are finally after wandering about in the wilderness for 40 years, now they're going to obtain, as it were, the fulfillment of God's promises. And they need instruction concerning how it is they are to live in God's land. How are God's redeemed people to live in the land of Canaan? So let me offer you a roadmap over the next few Lord's Days, this morning and next Lord's Day, okay? So this is part one of a part two. It started off as a one sermon. It ended up as two sermons. This morning and next Lord's Day, we're going to identify six attributes of God's redeemed people. Six attributes of God's redeemed people. And these are just ways of summarizing how it is God's people are to live in God's land under God's gracious rule. And these really do get transplanted, as it were, or maybe filtered through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ and then applied to the church today. And that application looks differently depending on the instruction. But we are reading this book as Christian scripture. And so our interest is not simply in understanding how God was instructing Israel thousands of years ago to live in the land of Canaan. Our interest is to see how it is God the Spirit continues to instruct God's people today through Christ in the word of God. So we're gonna do that. Six attributes of God's redeemed people. This morning we'll probably get through three, maybe, maybe three. And then you'll notice that if you read through the text, there are some more sensitive verses in this section. Moses doesn't avoid topics. God the Spirit doesn't avoid topics, which is a kindness of the Lord. Well, some of the more sensitive topics will will surface, those instructions will surface in a few weeks because we're gonna come back to this same text and we're going to look at these verses that apply or instruct concerning the sanctity of marriage and intimacy. So that's my desire. Six attributes of God's redeemed people. And then when we're finished with that, for a couple of weeks, we're gonna look back at this text and ask really a culturally relevant question and a Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25 question. What about the sanctity of marriage? What should that look like among the people of God? So that's the roadmap for you. Now you know the next few weeks. 
Let's dive into some of these attributes. And the first two attributes need to be seen together. So if you're taking notes, you're going to jot both of these down at the same time. And I think you'll see the relationship between the two. Here are the first two attributes I find in the text. Compassion and generosity. Compassion and generosity. Look down at chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. So we're going to start at the beginning of our text. We won't continue that way. We'll jump around a bit. But chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, Moses writes these words, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Verse 16, he shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. This is staggering. A slave escapes. You are to provide asylum to the slave. Moreover, let the slave live where the slave wants to live. Unparalleled in the ancient Near East, to my knowledge. And then this final exhortation, you shall not wrong him. And then his motivation for these kinds of actions, we're not going to be able to unpack all of these instructions in detail. But his motivation for these kinds of actions, generous, compassionate actions. Chapter 24, verse 18 reads, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. That's the redemptive motivation for how to live as God's redeemed people the redemptive motivation for living as God's redeemed people in God's good land under God's gracious and benevolent rule is that you were once a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Remember those things out of which you've been redeemed. Remember to whom you belong. That's the foundation of all that's being spoken in these instructions. As an aside, I want you to know this just about this particular couple of verses, chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Such compassion shown to runaway slaves really was unique in the ancient Near East. For example, there's another law code, and and I don't always do this, but I think here it's helpful. Another law code written in the early second millennium BC. So this this is one particular law code. It's a Babylonian law code. You don't have to remember all that. But I want you to hear how the Babylonians were instructed to deal with runaway slaves. Here's what it reads. If anyone receive into his house a runaway male or female slave of the court or of a freedman and does not bring it out, that is bring the slave out, the master of the house shall be put to death. You keep this slave, you protect this slave, or you hide this slave, you die. If anyone finds runaway male or female slaves in the open country and brings them to their masters. The master of the slaves shall pay him two shekels of silver. So not only will you receive the death penalty if you don't turn in these runaway slaves, you'll be rewarded if you do. Why? Because they're just slaves. In the Babylonian mindset, in the ancient Near East. If the slave will not give the name of his master... If you find a slave, they won't give the name of his master. The finder shall bring him to be, or rather to the palace. A further investigation must follow and the slave shall be returned to his master. If he holds the slaves in his house and they are caught there, he shall be put to death. That's the code of Hammurabi 
15 to 20. That is the verses, the codes, number 15 to 20. Notice the stark contrast with how God actually instructs his people as redeemed slaves to treat runaway slaves. Slave shows up in your village, in your house, on your property. Be generous, compassionate. You were a slave. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. That's the same logic the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6. As we see people caught in their sin, as we see others enslaved, as it were, to a terrible master, sin wielded by Satan himself, we ought to remember there, but for the grace of God, go we and extend generosity and compassion to those who are caught up in such slavery, inviting them, as it were, out of that slavery to experience liberation in Jesus Christ. Another example of compassion and generosity, this may, these may be the only two attributes we talk about this morning, but maybe not. So much in this text about compassion and generosity. Another example of this occurs in chapter 23, verses 19 and 20, where God prohibits his people from charging interest on loans among the community of faith. And that's important to say because what God does do is he instructs his people to provide unique compassion and generosity to the household of faith. He uses the language throughout these few chapters of brother. This is familial language. So even, you know, the translation fellow Israelite, it's accurate, but inadequate because this is familial language. And as Christians, we know the family, right? We know as we read these texts, this is perhaps the kind of text the apostle Paul was reading in Galatians chapter six, I believe it's verse 10, where he says, do good to all, but especially the household of faith. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to do good to all people, to show compassion and generosity to everyone, regardless of creed. However, there is a unique and concentrated commitment we have to one another in Christ. And we find that even in the Old Testament. And so he says, no interest. You can't charge interest to your brothers and sisters within Israel. You may charge interest to foreigners. And then not much detail is given after this. Notice chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. How about that? Now you shall not put any in your bag. So if you're walking around, you walk through a vineyard and you're hungry, look, grab some grapes, enjoy. To whom do they belong? It doesn't matter. Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, don't harvest. Don't bring your tractor over, okay? (laughs) But you can enjoy whatever you want in that moment. This is a way, again, of communicating God's generosity, God's compassion toward all members of the covenant community. Moreover, it's a way for God to emphasize 
whose land it is. You see that? No Israelite was to say, what do you mean, Lord? This is my land. No, God is saying, actually, it's mine. And you may do with the land whatever I commend you to do. You're a steward. Isn't it true, follower of Jesus, this is the case with all of life? What do we have that we have not received? And if we've received it, why do we boast as if we had not received it? As parents, we teach our children not to say the word, mine. And may I submit to adults that we ought not use the word either. Because nothing properly belongs to us, does it? Everything is a gift. Everything is a stewardship. I'll never forget, I've mentioned this to you before, a couple of dear friends of mine and brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, actually a couple of families that I've grown to love over many years have been blessed with temporary wealth. You'd never know it unless you were the recipient of a gift. And when they give, they don't, know what, they don't let their right hand know what their left hand is doing and vice versa. That is, they give in secret. But I'll never forget them telling me, Perry, it's not ours. Why would you thank me? Thank the owner. It belongs to God. And it's been entrusted to us to be faithful with what God owns. It's that simple. Isn't it that simple? And yet so often, what do we do? What do I do? Mine. What I have rebuked in my children, I find in my own heart. Persistently. And this is a reminder that nothing belongs to the Israelites. Nothing, church, belongs to us. And it makes sense, doesn't it, when you read in the New Testament, in the Gospels, for example, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields, and what are they doing in Matthew 12? They're plucking the grain, and they're eating it, and someone says, what in the world are they doing? It's not their land. They're obeying the law. They're following God's instructions. Enjoy. It belongs to the Lord. Concentrated compassion and generosity was also provided for the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow in God's law. And so there was this concentrated effort, as it were, or focus throughout God's law, even in our text, on those who were less fortunate. So in chapter 24, verses 19 through 22, and I know we're jumping around a lot. There's so much in this text. In chapter 24, verses 19 to 22, God commands landowners to leave portions of their crop in the field during the harvest for the poor in their midst to reap and enjoy. How about that? Don't reap everything. If you own land, when it, time, when it comes time to harvest, leave portions of it in the field. Why? To help provide for those who are less fortunate in your midst. Again, because the land does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. So while there are instructions in our text that fall into maybe categories of generosity and compassion, I want to tell you why I've put these two together. I think this is especially poignant for us as followers of Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to see the necessary connection between these two attributes among God's redeemed people. You see, because God never merely instructs us to have compassion. You know this? He never merely says, feel sympathy for others and leaves it. Have compassion for others and leaves it. Feeling sorry or sympathetic for another is insufficient if that sympathy does not produce works of generosity and kindness. You see, that's why we're seeing these two attributes together because compassion without generosity is bankrupt. It's comparable to faith without works or hearing without doing. Consider the gospel with me for just a moment. God was not merely compassionate or sympathetic for us. As broken people, people who were enslaved to sin and separated from God, it wasn't simply that God felt sorry for us. How many commercials have we seen right over the years where the commercial concludes and we feel bad but do nothing? I'm not saying we should act in that moment, but I am suggesting that feeling bad is empty if not accompanied by works, works of generosity. God's compassion, if I could use that term, God's compassion produced generosity. That's the gospel. To use Paul's words, God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. So what this means is that God the Son truly became human while truly remaining God. He lived and he died in our place and for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. And in so doing, God added the work of generosity to his compassion for sinners. It would have been something altogether different, wouldn't it? if God simply felt sorry for us, simply was moved to compassion, if we could even describe God in such a manner, which of course is woefully inadequate, but did nothing about it. No, God added the infinitely valuable work of generosity to his compassion. And that work is the gospel of his son. He put, as it were, flesh onto this compassion. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we can receive the eternal benefits and joys of being in a right relationship with God through faith in and surrender to Jesus Christ. It's good news for those of us in the room who have come to realize or are coming to realize that we indeed are sinners. We are people enslaved to sin and death and hell and Satan. Yeah, we exercise our will, but the problem is we consistently want to do the wrong things. And we need to be set free. And we didn't just need a God who felt sorry for us. We needed a God who intervened we needed God to do something about it. And that's precisely what he's done through Christ. Definitively. So if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, don't leave this place without embracing Christ in faith 
Perhaps the Spirit of God is bearing testimony even within you right now that before this morning you didn't know this, God. You didn't realize your need. You didn't know the extent of your sin and you didn't know the extent of his grace. If that's where you are, then would you consider, would you consider staying afterward and having a conversation with us? We'd love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to serve this compassionate and generous God. And you can meet us as you walk out of this room here in just a bit, take a left, and there's a room out there on the right-hand side called Crossroads. It's labeled above the room. Go in there and talk with a pastor who would love to come alongside of you. And if that's not where you are right now, then talk to someone. Talk to someone who knows this compassionate and generous God. Eternity depends on it. Your soul depends on it. Additionally, what does this mean? One, it means, of course, we can know this gracious God, this compassionate God, this generous God. But secondly, it also means that for those of us who have come to know God's compassion and generosity, we now, hear this, Christians, we now are given the privilege of modeling God's compassion and generosity through generosity of our own. In some small way, we now become a conduit or an avenue through which God's generosity and compassion flow. What joy it is to be used of the Lord. Listen to the words of a pastor, 18th century pastor. So very recent in my book. Maybe a close to a modern 18th century pastor, English Baptist named Zenas Trivet. Trivet wrote these words, and he actually preached these words at the founding of a church. He said, quote, how deplorable had been our case, brothers, if Christ had only pitied us. Now hear this. And not added participation to his compassion. He goes on to say, we would have been forever miserable. Follow the example of Christ then, brothers, and to your sympathy, we could say compassion, add generosity. Model the gospel to other people around you. Model the gospel to your church family. Model the gospel to a watching world. In light of the recent decision of the Supreme Court. You're going to have opportunity, Christian, to model the gospel. We've been talking about abortion for a long time. Many of us have protested abortion. We've prayed against abortion. And while certainly this is not the end of abortion, you understand. It's a step. But I'll never forget, I'll never forget the words of a wise man of God who cautioned me when I was having a conversation with a young man and a young woman who were living together and claimed to be Christians. And I said to them, you're a living contradiction right now. Repent. Your allegiance to Christ must be greater than your allegiance to one another. And this particular couple happened to be interested in membership in the church. And I told him, I said, we cannot accept you as members unless there's repentance from this. Not because we demanded perfection, but we demanded what Christ demands us to demand, characteristic obedience, faithfulness, 
by God's grace. And I'll never forget what this wise, wise man said. He said, if you're gonna call people out of a life of sin, and you should, you had better be ready to put your money where your mouth is. In other words, if you call a couple out of living together, are you ready to provide them with housing? Or are you not ready to add generosity to your compassion? Are they just words? I feel that way potentially for us as a church moving forward. This is something we've got to be on guard against. There will be opportunities for us who have opposed abortion, opposed Roe v. Wade for a long time to add generosity to our compassion. It may take the form of adoption. It may take the form of foster caring. It may take the form of giving more money to these ministries that are pouring in to these mothers who are struggling and pouring into these unborn children like Choices Resource Center or one of our own members is the director. You ought to be asking the question, Christian, we all ought to be asking the question, how can I add generosity to my compassion here? How can I dig more deeply and write a bigger check? How can we as a church prioritize more so what it looks like to come alongside of these ministries and to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ who added generosity to his eternal compassion for us and rescued us out of slavery to sin. You understand? So there will be opportunities. Let's seize those opportunities. Let's brainstorm about what those opportunities might look like. Let's talk to these ministries regarding how we might partner with them and add generosity to our compassion. Okay, I am gonna mention the third attribute and do an injustice to it, no pun intended, because the attribute is justice. The third attribute we find in our text is the attribute of justice, and I'm gonna run through this fairly quickly. Justice is one of those loaded cultural terms that means many different things to many different people. And when I use the word justice, I intend a couple of aspects. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It perhaps may help you understand how the Bible talks about justice. But because of the social justice movements, plural, this word gets used in so many different ways. So I want to tell you what I mean. And there are two aspects. And one aspect is known as primary justice. I've not invented these terms. These are oftentimes ways biblical scholars talk about justice. Primary justice. And the second aspect is rectifying justice. So there's primary justice on the one hand. These are two facets, really, two aspects of the same concept. Primary justice on the one hand and rectifying justice on the other hand. Primary justice is simply this, treating others equitably. Loving others well, treating others fairly. It's a way of describing the positive treatment of others in love. That's primary justice. The second aspect, this rectifying justice, is only necessary because of the absence of primary justice. There would be no need for rectifying justice if primary justice were only ever in existence and there were no breaches of that justice. 
So rectifying justice is only necessary because of the absence of true justice. It's a way of summarizing the various remedies or even punishments in response to injustice. You see? We might even say it this way, and this, this isn't a punishment per se, but this is a remedy. Why does foster care exist? Because of the absence of primary justice. So it's a kind of rectifying justice in a fallen world. You see, why do so many of these ministries exist? Why, why I looked up and saw Devon, why does Street Hope exist? Because of the absence of primary justice. It's a form of God's merciful rectifying justice. You see, there will come a day when there will be no more need for rectifying justice. Amen, Devin? There'll be no more need for street hope. There'll be no more need for choices. Sarah, wherever you are, there'll be no more need for foster care. Looked up and saw a brother who serves in that way. But these are the two aspects of justice we find in the text of Scripture. For example, let me give you a couple of examples of this. Those who are in a more socially and financially privileged position are warned against exploiting others who are in more vulnerable positions. So chapter 24, verse 6 is an example of this. I'm not going to read those. I'm going to mention them. Chapter 24, verse 6. And chapter 24, verses 10 through 13 tell us that there are certain items that are just necessary for human subsistence and you ought not exploit the weaker to gain a stronger upper hand financially. Don't demand of them their very lives. This would be comparable, for example, of charging an interest that is just unreasonable, which happens. It happens all the time. Don't demand of them a millstone that is used to provide for their family. They need the millstone. Don't demand that as a pledge. Don't go inside of the house of the person to whom you're loaning the money so you can look around the room and say, I want that and that and that. After all, you need a loan, right? No, stay out of their house, God says. Stay out of their house because you're fallen and you're going to be tempted to believe they shouldn't be asking for this loan if they have that. happens time and time again in God's good instruction, cautioning us to practice primary justice, do good to others, do what's right to others, and for Israel in particular to to rectify. That is when there is an injustice to punish it. So for example, chapter 24, verse 16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, in the case of capital punishment, when you commit a sin or an injustice that rises to the level of demanding capital punishment, you must bear it. That's rectifying justice. Again, only necessary church because of a fallen world. It's comparable to wrath. Necessary expression of God's holiness in the presence, as it were, of sin. 
Justice focuses on human relationships. But it even extends, I'm just going to note this, to the treatment of oxen. Chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. How about that? Out of nowhere. And this is the nature of these couple of chapters, by the way. But Paul will interpret this verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as a kind of representative text emphasizing, look, God's not just concerned about oxen. If he cares about oxen, how much more does he care about humans? And I think that's the point in Deuteronomy. Chapter 25, verses 13 to 16, God commands his people to only use full and fair weights. That is, don't cheat people. Don't lie to people to gain an upper hand financially. Merchants would have their own balances and their own weights. And these weights were hand chiseled oftentimes. Make sure the weights are accurate. Give people their due. What a biblically faithful view of justice does and we've got to wrap up this attribute, but what it does is it instructs us that our relationship with God is expressed and impacted by our relationship with other people. And that's really the case throughout these attributes. Have you noticed that? Compassion, generosity, and justice, all of them dealing with horizontal relationships with other people. This is God's instruction. How are my people to live in a right relationship with me by living in a right relationship with one another? And this is explicit. Look at the text with me. Chapter 24, the end of verse 13. After this discussion about what's proper concerning a pledge, well, we'll actually read all of verse 13. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, okay? Give him what he needs to sleep. Don't keep it as a pledge. And then notice, and it shall be righteousness or justice, tzedakah in Hebrew. Same word, the same concept of righteousness and justice. It shall be tzedakah for you before the Lord your God. Do you get that? The way you treat another will be justice or righteousness for you before the Lord. Look further at verses 14 and 15. Same chapter, chapter 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. Don't keep wages back. He's poor and he counts on it. Notice, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and following, Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And his answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22 each gospel has a little variation on the number of ways he qualifies it. But it's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all that you are, all that you have. But he doesn't stop there, does he? In fact, he says, and I'm interested in this, I've meditated on this verse for years now. The second is like it. 
Simple statement. That is to say, the second parallels this, supports this, is inseparable from this. And what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is Jesus saying? In part, I think he's saying that one of the most fundamental ways you love the Lord your God is by loving others. You want to measure your love for God, as it were? You want to quantify it? Look at how you're loving others. As Jesus will say elsewhere, those who do these things to the least of these, my brothers, do it to me. Well, how do we do this? By considering others more important than ourselves? By loving one another as Christ has loved us, John 13? I'm convinced that one of the most important facets of Christian and church life as we move forward, move forward toward a more, can I say this, progressively hostile cultural environment in relation to Christianity. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But as we move forward, as the church, as redeemed people, it's going to become all the more important to live as God's redeemed community in such a way that offers a convincing apologetic of our redemption. It's how the community interacts with one another and interacts with other people that bears testimony to the power of the message we preach. How will people know that there is a powerful, omnipotent God in heaven who rescues sinners out of their sin if the people sharing the message remain characteristically sinful? That message is bankrupt, church. And to be honest, for me, it's one of the reasons why I despised Christians early on. Until the Lord got a hold of me. And while I struggle with sin daily, and if you want to know more of the details, you can ask my wife and kiddos. Or just spend a little more time with me. I am being changed by the power of this gospel. That's a convincing apologetic to a watching world. I've quoted a Baptist already. I'll quote another one. We're not the only Christians, I know. (laughs) But we are some of the Christians. John Fawcett, around the same time, actually, 18th century, as Zenas Trivet, wrote the stirring hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds. Do you know this hymn? Blessed be the tie that binds. It's a description of the redeemed community, what it looks like to walk and live as redeemed people in relationship to one another. Here's what he wrote. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims, our one, our comforts, and our cares. We share our mutual woes. That's a redeemed community. We share our mutual woes. Our mutual burdens bear And often for each other flows the sympathizing tear 
When we are called to part, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage, by the way, while each in expectation lives and waits to see the day from sorrow, toil, and pain. And sin, we shall be free. And perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. That's a convincing testimony and apologetic for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel that every week I'm given the joy of standing before your people and unpacking your word. I, I want to say far more than I'm able to. That's because I could never exhaust the depths of your word. Humble us, O oh Father, today. Convict us of sin. Show us where we have failed in the areas of compassion and generosity and justice. Remind us, O oh God, that it's in the person of Christ where all these attributes meet and meet perfectly. So that now we are not called to live in our own strength, but what you have demanded from us, you have provided for us in Christ. So continue to provide, Father, so that we might live as redeemed people for the glory of Christ and through the glory of Christ for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.